Uh, we are, as Micah said, starting a brand new series out of the Gospel of Mark, and so I hope you'll turn there and follow along with us. You know, we started the beginning of this year, 2022, with a series called Long Story Short, where we examined the single most important story of all time that's found in the Bible. This epic story is all about God's mission, his universal plan to restore man's relationship with him. That was, that's what the Bible is ultimately all about, from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. <clears throat> it's a story so profound and so complex and so important that it impacts every single life. If, if allowed to, it will change and transform any life, no matter how far removed from God they might be. This is God's story, the account of his search for us. And it's quite literally the best, truest, and most important story of all time. As a part of that series, we invited all those who are part of Northeast, those who track along with us online, to join us in the transformation that comes from the Bible by reading the scriptures on a regular basis together as a church family. I want to encourage you. You can still jump in. It's not too late. We're going to encourage you throughout the year to be a part of this. If you haven't done it yet, go to nccleax.org slash Bible, and you can sign up for one of the plans there. I hope you'll do that. It's been great for me already. I've loved it. I loved it. Today, we're going to take another step with the Bible by studying the main character of this epic story that God has written. And of course, I'm referring to his son, Jesus Christ. Today, we're starting a study, as, I, as Mike and I have both mentioned now, from the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you're telling a story, a lot of stories can be valuable, and they should be told, right? Not every story should be repeated. Not everybody, every story is good to be told. But if a story is important then telling that story is also important. And it should be handled and managed in a way where you protect the truth. When telling the story of Jesus, the author must be reliable. I've been an avid reader of history for more years than I cared to admit. I love history, I love events from history. And what I found is the books that interest me the most are those who are based on eyewitness accounts, people who were there and saw it, or people who have reported on those who were there and saw it. And often, books like biographies or, or history books, books that are based on a specific event in history, will chronicle events from history based entirely on just facts. But if an author adds details to uh, that are not backed by facts, then you have what is called historical fiction. Now, I love historical fiction, too, and I, I really wasn't much of a consumer of historical fiction until just the last couple years. But historical fiction is a literary genre in which the plot takes place during an actual historical event. But there are characters there are dialogue, there's dialogue, and there are even some events that have happened in, the, in that narrative, but aren't really part of history. They've embellished the event to help tell the story. If an author takes license to insert his or her thoughts or ideas into the narrative, then you no longer have history, actual history, but instead you have historical fiction. So an author who is committed to telling the story of what actually happened will write based solely on the facts. 
And the truth is that finding the facts sometimes is harder than just making stuff up. So before we jump into the study of the Gospel of Mark, let's meet the author and let's find out if he's reliable. Most often, the author of Mark is referred to simply as Mark. It's kind of easy to remember who the author was because he's got his name in the title. But as a younger man, he was often called John Mark. And we find his first mention in Acts, the 12th chapter. He is identified as the son of a lady by the name of Mary, and her home was being used for a prayer gathering. Some of you might remember, that's the place where Peter showed up after he was miraculously set free from jail. We also know that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas was one of the key leaders in the early church. But probably the biggest event that we see Mark being part of was he was one of the people who was along uh, on, the, on the team that went with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on the ver- their very first missionary journey to plant churches around Asia Minor. Mark was a helper on that trip, and they were church planters. That's what they were doing. However, Mark didn't complete the trip. In fact, he dropped out, or some would say he deserted Paul and Barnabas halfway through the trip. He went home. Sometime later then, Paul says to Barnabas that we should return and uh, go check out all the churches that we planted on our first journey to see how things are going. And Barnabas agreed, but apparently he, it was conditional based on we, we should take Mark with us again, which the apostle Paul said he didn't think it was a good idea because the young man deserted us the first time. Maybe he's not mature enough, in essence, you know, to do this kind of work. And the, the Bible tells us that Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement over the issue of Mark that they ended up separating and going on their separate missionary journeys, Barnabas taking Mark with him and Paul taking a man by the name of Silas with him. But that's not the end of the story with Mark's relationship with the Apostle Paul. Years later, we learn that Mark was actually with Paul, serving with him, and Paul calls him a fellow worker in the book of Philemon. And near the end of Paul's life, Paul sends a request to Timothy from a Roman prison, and this is what he says. He says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Obviously, Mark has matured at this point over the years, and he's become a faithful servant of the Lord. And Paul recognized his progress and considered him a valuable companion, a great support. That's not the last time we read about Mark, though. We actually read in the last mention of him occurs in 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, verse 13, where Peter refers to Mark as his son. Now, it's his son in the faith. He, he sees him, though, as this close relationship. This, no doubt, is a sentimental reference that Peter is making be, towards Mark because Mark had been such a great support to him. They spent a lot of time together, but he had been a tremendous support in the ministry. And I want you to think about it. Two of the most prolific voices in all the New Testament, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, and both of them 
at the end of their lives, in the salutation of their ministries, they're saying how influential and important that the writer of the Gospel of Mark was to the ministry that they were doing. Well, that's about all that we know about the writer of the Gospel of Mark. But here's the question that I want us to think about, and maybe I can give you a little bit of evidence here. It's, the question is, is the Gospel of Mark a historically reliable resource? Can we trust Mark to tell the true story? Mark wrote the gospel sometime between AD 55 and AD 59. There's a, a window in there. He doesn't explicitly claim that his gospel was written by an eyewitness to Jesus, though some understand Mark's account to have been based primarily on the testimony of the apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness to the accounts recorded by Mark. Mark's gospel is the earliest account of Jesus' life. It is the first gospel that was written. And the early date of when the gospel of Mark was written would suggest that the author had two, two advantages. One is it was either he had close proximity to Jesus, who is the focus of this book, or he had direct knowledge of the life of Jesus through someone who did. This only increases the likelihood of this gospel being historically reliable. The closer you are to the, write, the writing of an event to the event that actually happened, the more likely it is to be accurate. There's one other piece of information that points to the accuracy of this book, and that is that scholars believe that Matthew, the gospel writer, and Luke, the gospel writer, both used Mark's gospel as a reference when they were writing their own gospels. Now, how much credibility does that add to Mark's book being actually historically accurate? All of this kind of combines together to add credibility to the reliability of Mark's gospel. So after getting familiar with who this young man was and finding his work to be historically reliable, let's see what he has to say. First verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, says this, the beginning of the good news, pay attention to that phrase, about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark starts out to introduce us to the main character of the book. And the main character of the book of Mark is Jesus, as we mentioned already. And he uses some interesting words to describe Jesus to us. Words that set Jesus apart from every other person. That give us, words that give us a tremendous insight into who Jesus is. Not just who he was, but who he is. And the story in this gospel. He's the focal point. He begins with this phrase, the beginning of the good news. Now, the phrase good news is kind of an interesting phrase. If you, if you have an older Bible, this phrase was actually previously translated gospel, right? If you have, a, if you have a, uh, an NIV that was translated before 2011, it says gospel in there. But that's not what it says now. And part of the reason why they change to good news in modern translations is because of the lack of understanding of what the word gospel actually means. But the word gospel is translated good news. So it's pretty much a wash if they make that change. Mark doesn't identify his book as a gospel. 
He doesn't say, this is a gospel. Now, that's a type of, of writing style. It's another literary genre. A gospel is a certain type of writing. And Mark doesn't claim that that's the case. He doesn't come out and overtly say, this is a gospel. But his book does recount the story of the good news. The good news is how salvation that comes through Jesus actually came to be. So Mark's book is considered to be a gospel along with Matthew and Luke and John, the four gospel writers that start out the New Testament. Mark introduces Jesus as the main focus of this book, and it's believed that the group Mark is writing to are Gentiles who lived in Rome and were recent Christians. Most of them were Christians relatively a short period of time. So he regularly takes time, you'll find as you read through this, to explain certain Jewish customs and Jewish activities because these, these Greeks, these Romans, they didn't understand what was going on in the Jewish culture. They weren't experts on that. So Mark would help them to understand so they'd better understand the world that Jesus was living in. Mark wrote to make Jesus known. That should be our mission, to make Jesus known. And that was Mark's helping us to do that. He will present the person, he'll present the work and the teachings of Jesus with the hope that the people reading it will put their faith in him. And you know, that's my hope through this series, is that if you've never taken that step to say yes to Jesus, that through this study, you'll track with us and you will find him to be everything that he claims to be. I hope that through this study, Mark's gospel, you will come to know Jesus on a personal level, better than ever before. And when you put your faith in him, you will see the transformational power that he can have to change your life. So to introduce Jesus to his readers, Mark does something that's kind of interesting. He records the testimony of several reliable witnesses who will testify that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Messiah. So the first witness to testify about Jesus is Mark himself. I mean, who better than for Mark, the, the writer, to testify? And in his opening statement, Mark introduces Jesus, and in doing so, he makes this bold declaration. Let's read verse one one more time. He says, the beginning of the good news, or the gospel, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The first thing he calls Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Jesus, he He's writing this about Jesus, and he calls him the Messiah. Now, he's writing to Greeks again. They, they may not know a ton about all the Old Testament prophecies predicting the coming of the Messiah. And it's interesting because he uses a different word. He doesn't use, he doesn't use the Hebrew. He used the Greek word here, Christos, where we get our, ver, our, our word Christ. In fact, some of your translations may not say Jesus the Messiah. It, may, it says Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting about this is that Messiah was Hebrew. There you go. And, and Christ was actually Greek. But you, they're interchangeable for us today. Now, if you, were, if you were Jewish, you would use Messiah. If you were a Gentile, you probably used the word Greek. You used the Greek, which was Christ. But they both mean the same thing, anointed one. So they're, to us, they're interchangeable. 
But Mark, Mark gives this testimony about who Jesus is. He clearly wants his readers to understand the identity and the mission of Jesus. Now, here's Jesus' identity. Since Israel's kings were always designated to be a king or the future king by the anointing of oil, it would make sense that the king that the Jews expected Jesus or for God to send, who was Jesus, in the future was called Messiah or anointed one. Because he's not just going to be a king. He's going to be the king. And by identifying Jesus as the Christ, as the Greeks would hear this, Mark he indicates that Jesus is the one who fulfills the centuries-old prophecies of a coming Messiah. He's going to bring the Gentiles into the Jewish culture and help them to understand there's a lot that happened before that predicted this, and you guys need to know it. But that's not where he stops. Mark goes a step further and makes maybe even, if you're new to this, an outrageous claim. He testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, to make a statement like that, you better have the facts or proof on your side, or you will look extremely foolish when you make a bold claim like, Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark will. He will write for the next 16 chapters to validate this claim. It's not, it's not a surprise that he mentions it in the very first verse, because he's going to spend the rest of the book adding evidence after evidence after evidence to point to that being a fact. Remember, Mark wrote to share the good news or the gospel that God's son had come into the world and died for our sins. And it is good news that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be part of the family of God and one day we can spend eternity with him in heaven all of this is possible because Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, the Messiah. And Mark testifies to that. We'll hear from Mark throughout, of course, this gospel. He's not done testifying. But he starts this whole kind of explanation of who Jesus is with the first verse, his testimony. The second, next two testimonies that we have are written in verses two and three. These are the prophets of the Old Testament, Malachi and Isaiah. Check out what uh, Mark records from these two prophets in verses two and three. He says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's Malachi speaking. And then a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's from Isaiah. The reason the testimony of these two Old Testament prophets who wrote 800 years before is because Mark wants to make a connection here between this voice in the wilderness, this messenger who was sent ahead, who we know as John the Baptist. He wants to connect John with Jesus. And there's a connection here. The prophets predicted one would come before the Messiah to prepare the way. And people were understanding that that was John. Who's he preparing the way for? 
Warren Wearsby writes in his uh, commentary on the book of Mark, he says this, he says, in ancient times, before a king visited any part of his realm, a messenger was sent before him to prepare the way. This included preparing, uh, this included both repairing the roads and preparing the people. And you know, that, that kind of preparation still happens today. If you think about it, when our president makes a visit, preparations are made on a very large scale sometime before he actually arrives at the destination he's going to visit. John Oldham is part of our Northeast family here, and he is with the United States Secret Service. He's actually the agent in charge here in the Lexington office, and I've been privileged to call John my friend for a number of years now. I asked John earlier this week, what goes into the whole planning before a presidential visit? This is what he wrote, it's what he told me. He said, when a president visits a U.S. city, a city excuse me, an advanced team will travel from Washington, D.C. to that location about 10 days before, and they'll meet with the agents in that area, and they'll start to pre-plan. That small team of agents will start pre-planning and coordinating the visit with federal, other federal agencies, state agencies, local agencies, all of this coordination to make sure that the visit goes without incident. Once they hit the ground, John told me, they, they, the agents, they will work nonstop until the president leaves that area. And then on the day of the visit, there will be many more special agents that will travel in to support the mission of keeping the president safe and well. In fact, there are so many details that go into this that it's almost impossible to think that they haven't, that they've missed anything. They take this very seriously. In fact, John said this is all about, all this work is about one thing, and this is how he's framed it up. He said, everything surrounds this one heartbeat. Of course, he's referring to the president's heartbeat. You will most likely not read much about all the preparations that they make for a presidential visit in the news or in the papers or magazines. But the press will cover the president's visit with great detail, especially if he comes to a place where you're close by. There are so many people involved who work to prepare the way before the president arrives, and nobody knows about all that they do. John said this, he said, for a Secret Service agent, when the day is dull and boring, that's a good day. He said, when there's activity or action, he said, that's bad. Something didn't go right. These guys work so hard to set everything up so that when the president arrives, the visit goes well. Sending envoys to prepare the way for the arrival of a president or king or some other dignitary is not uncommon. In fact, the practice is, is almost as old as having kings themselves. So it's not unusual that when the king of kings and the lord of lords came into the world, that God would send an envoy to prepare the way for him. And that envoy was John the Baptist. However, John the Baptist wasn't your typical envoy that was usually sent to make preparations for a visiting king. He was as different and unusual as he could be. 
But then so was the king he was sent to announce. You see, Jesus was unlike any other king. He came to be a servant. He was sent to minister to people and ultimately to die for the sins of the world. That's not your normal king. God had already prepared the way. He had prepared the way for this envoy some 800 years before when the prophets Isaiah and Malachi made the announcements about the arrival of the Messiah. The prophecies of Malachi and Isaiah testify who Jesus was, the Christ. Well, the next witness that Mark rolls out for us to to hear from is this special envoy from God, John the Baptist. And we read about him in verses four through eight. He says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Hmm, sounds exciting, doesn't it? With a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist lived a somewhat strange life. In fact, you could say that John himself was somewhat strange. Bob Deffenbaugh, who is a preacher down in Texas, wrote this about John the Baptist. He he was like an under-socialized relative who shows up unannounced and unexpected at holidays and other social functions and embarrasses everyone. You probably have one of those people in your family. If you don't know who that is, it might be you, okay? John was, he was a little bit odd. He had a way about him. He was so unconventional. He would get right up into your business and point out your sins. And he wasn't a respecter of persons with regard to that. He would give that same kind of editorial comment to the religious leaders of the day. I mean, he wasn't afraid to tell anyone anything. John lived in the desert where Mark tells us he ate locusts and wild honey in order to survive. He, he was most likely living there in seclusion and had to survive on whatever he found in the desert. He wore clothes made from camel's hair, which he probably made himself from a dead camel that he found in the desert. No one envied John the Baptist. He lived a simple, humble life. He didn't have a home. He didn't have any possessions. He didn't have any other clothes except the camel suit that he wore. And all of this was for one purpose, to prepare the way for the coming Christ. The Apostle John writes this in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. This is John the Baptist speaking. He says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the friend of the groom who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John believed that Jesus 
was the Messiah. And he wanted all the focus to be on Jesus. Now, right before John's death, he's going to have some questions. Is this truly the Messiah? And he sent a word by one of his disciples to Jesus, and they sent word back that he was. But John, as he's introducing Jesus as the Messiah, he believes this is who he is, and he wanted all the focus to be on Jesus, not on him. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist was preaching a message that Matthew records simply as, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So by calling the nation to repentance, he's preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then John, who was given this remarkable privilege, he was given the privilege of baptizing Jesus. Though he's humble in the sense that He doesn't feel like he's worthy. Look what Matthew writes in Matthew, the third chapter. He says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John recognizes the significance of the Messiah and that he's not worthy. He's not worthy in spite of the fact that he felt completely out of his depth in being asked to baptize Jesus He eventually does just that and baptizes him. And John's message and the baptism that he was performing were preparations so that the people would be ready to meet Jesus and to put their faith in him. John believed Jesus was the Messiah. And Mark testifies to John the Baptist's words. Well, the final witnesses that Mark rolls out for us, maybe the, the strongest witnesses, especially for those that were present. And those witnesses are God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we read their testimony in verses 9 through 11. It says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now check this out. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit bear witness regarding Jesus and who he was. Mark points out three significant, we would even say miraculous things that happened as Jesus comes out of the water after his baptism. The first thing that he he chronicles is the the heavens were torn apart. And we'll talk about that a little more in just a second. But the second thing is that a dove descends out of heaven. That was the Holy Spirit. And it descends down onto Jesus. And then finally, the voice of God is spoken. You hear God speaking. And he's declaring Jesus to be the son of God. And that God loved him and he was pleased with him. And the heavens, this all came out of heaven. When the heavens were torn open, that suggests the coming of a revelation from God. That's what's happened previously in scripture. It's not the first time it happens here. It's happened before. In fact, Ezekiel, the prophet, says this in Ezekiel 1.1. He said, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. 
So there's a revelation that has come. And when the heavens are torn open, the revelation that followed on Jesus as he's coming out of from the water from his baptism was that the Holy Spirit descended as the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove, and then God the Father spoke, declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. Now that voice from heaven confirms what Mark told us in the first verse that Jesus was the Son of God. And if anybody had any doubts that day who Jesus was, if they were there, if they were waiting in line to be baptized by John, there would be no doubt that there is something significant about this man that he just baptized. He truly must be the Messiah. God made it crystal clear when he announced from heaven that Jesus was his son and he loved him and he was pleased with him. Mark gives us a lot of testimony to reflect on that Jesus is who he says he was. Just in the first 11 verses of his gospel, there's a simple, there's a simple uh, explanation there, but it's packed with all kinds of evidence. You know, people have been debating whether Jesus was who he claimed to be for centuries and centuries. And it's, a, it's an important thing to, to, to ponder because if he is the Messiah, the Son of God, then we should pay, give him our undivided attention, pay complete attention to him. And if he's not, then he's just like any other you know, gifted rabbi. See, Jesus made some big claims. He claimed to be the Son of God. Not only was it testified about him, but he claimed that himself. He claimed to be the only way that a person can actually connect with God. And he claimed that he was able to forgive people for the rebellion of, that they had, they, they had committed against God. Jesus performed miracles to give people proof of the power that he he possessed and the authority that he possessed and that he was who he claimed to be. I think that's why Mark started his gospel the way he did. Just a few verses, but he wanted us to know immediately that Jesus was much more than just a talented rabbi or a gifted teacher. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. At least that's Mark's opinion. So the question I want you to think about whether you've never put your heart and your life in the hands of Jesus or you've been walking with him for 50 years, I want you to think about, the question is, is Jesus my Messiah? Is he? Because it's a question well worth considering because if he is who he said he was, then we should put our faith in him. So I hope you'll track with us throughout this series because we're going to, unpack a lot of things that will show a light on Jesus and help us to get to know him even better than maybe we've ever known him before. Let me say one last thing. In the end of Mark's gospel, and you could jump ahead if you want to and, and read this, but we're going to get there eventually, but I don't, don't want to hold you back. Mark is going to share what I think is the biggest reason to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And that is that he died and rose from the dead. Jesus was executed by the Romans. They were experts in capital punishment. If you were executed by them, you were dead. I mean, it was official. They made sure you were dead, and they made sure that you suffered all along the way. 
And so Jesus was executed by them. A lot of people saw that. They witnessed, their witnesses were numerous. And then he was buried in a grave. And he rose from the dead. And there were a lot of people. In fact, the Bible says over 100 people saw him alive after his, resurre- after his resurrection. And what's crazy about this is that he predicted that all of this would happen, and then it did. The whole story is recorded in the Bible. One place is in the Gospel of Mark. It's also recorded in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. This shows that Jesus is who he said he is, the Son of God. Because only a Son of God would have the power and authority to be able to come back from the dead. None of us have that authority. None of us have that capability on our own. No human does. But a Son of God, he would have that power. So, is Jesus my Messiah? Let me pray. Thank you, God, for your word. I thank you for this book we call the Bible. We thank you for all those that wrote in this, and we thank you, God, for the the epic story that it tells, your desire to have a relationship with us and everything that you did, every step you took to rebuild what was a fractured relationship because of sin. God, I thank you for the gospels that tell the story of Jesus and all the remarkable things that he did, but the greatest thing was laying down his life that it would be a sacrifice that would build that bridge that I might have a relationship with you. God, thank you for explaining this grand story to us. God, I pray that as we go through this series that all of us would encounter you in a deeper way. Don't let any of us miss the truth that you want us to know through this study, God. Draw us close to you. And if, if someone has not yet put their, their faith in you, I pray that through this study, they will find Jesus worthy of our faith, and they will take a step to trust him with their lives. I pray this in Jesus' name.